This episode is brought to you by lynda.com. lynda.com is an easy and affordable way to help individuals and organizations learn. Instantly stream thousands of courses created by experts on business, software, web development, graphic design, and more. For a free trial, go to lynda.com/smart. This episode is also brought to you by Squarespace, the all-in-one platform that makes it fast and easy to create your own professional website, portfolio, and online store. For a free trial and 10% off, visit squarespace.com and enter the offer code LESSDUMB at checkout. A better web starts with your website. Welcome to the You Are Not So Smart Podcast, episode 34, in between episode 6. This is an in-between episode of the You Are Not So Smart podcast, which means no experts, no cookies, but we will be exploring another topic in the realm of self-delusion, the psychology of reasoning, decision-making, judgments, the neuroscience of not being all that great at thinking about stuff. And that is, <laughs> there are so many cool episodes that are coming up related to these topics. We have uh, procrastination. We have the Dunning-Kruger effect. We have optimism bias. All of these things are going to have world-famous psychologists and scientists who are going to help us understand those topics better. Today, though, we're going to talk about the post-hoc fallacy. So this is a logical fallacy. Now, we often talk about logical fallacies on the show, uh, on the website, and there have been many times throughout both books, You Are Not So Smart and You Are Now Less Dumb, where I talk about a specific fallacy. But we usually what happens is we talk about these things as building blocks of other psychological phenomena, but sometimes I'd like to pull one aside and just talk about this one thing. And this is a great one to pull aside because it comes up a lot. It seems to be a building block for many of the ways that we, um, that we stumble around, that we do mental pratfalls. And it's because it is involved in so many of the uh, processes by which we make sense of the world, by which we create uh, mental models that we then interact with. But first of all, what is a logical fallacy. If this is the first time you've come across this term, uh, I like to think of them as if you look at language as a way of communicating ideas and information from one place to another by tra- transferring a sort of a, a cause and an effect relationship from one uh, location to another location, such as um, with computer code, that's a language, with math, that's a language, uh, with um, Latin, that is a language, with English, like right now, all of all that's happening right now is me trying to get something out of my brain and put it into your brain. You're welcome. And uh, that is the function of language. That's what we do with it. But it is a code, and all codes are limited. You know, that's why there are many, many different codes, whether it is with computing or whether it is um, in communicating an idea through words and sentences and letters or through art. You know, there are all sorts of ways to express for instance, sadness can be expressed in a poem or a song or 
notes played on a violin or in French or using Pascal. There are so many ways of trying to accomplish this. And each one of them is, uh, it has its pluses and its minuses, some strengths and weaknesses, and each one can break down. English has a really great, um, there's a really great example in English of how it can be broken down. And here it is. Here we go. Get ready. Stop everything. Think about this. Really try to ponder it. Here it is. This sentence is false. Oh, I just broke your brain. I hope your eyes are spiraling right now and you're going, whoa, 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 because that is what's called the liar paradox. It is a language paradox. It cannot be resolved. There's no way that you can take the framework of your brain and then run this code through it and come out with any result that isn't just garbage. It's a, it's a way of breaking the system, the way of breaking that code. And uh, there are many other examples. There's a bigger example of that where you just say, the next sentence is false. The previous sentence is true. Yep, now you're in a logic loop. You're stuck. It's over. Reboot. That is a great illustration of how language is approximate, imperfect, and can be broken. And since we use language to create arguments, and we sometimes are arguing with ourselves, and sometimes we're arguing with another person, there are all sorts of ways that you can get caught up, tangled up in the way that you express yourself that makes it feel like you're accomplishing something, like you're stating a case, that you're supporting a conclusion, that you are uh, coming to some sort of realization and you're communicating it, but you're not. You're not communicating it. You're actually failing at that. And those are called logical fallacies. Uh, one of my favorites is called begging the question. And in you are now less dumb. This is how I, um, this is how I explain it. So imagine a mayor, a politician is trying to get you to support this, uh, this thing, this group has, uh, supplied him with some sort of financial backing and he is standing up on his, uh, platform and he says, we must ensure that it is always possible for people here to make and sell alcoholic mayonnaise because microbrewed sandwich toppings make for great towns. Uh, a town prospers when its citizens know they can ferment oiled egg yolks. Now, that's soaring rhetoric, and it sounds good, but these sentences are just circling one another. It's no different than saying, cake tastes good because it is delicious. Of course, the question being begged here is, uh, you know, who says that cake is delicious? Who says that cake tastes good? These are both of these are the, you're saying the same thing twice. What you have to do here is prove that cake tastes good, which is a whole separate argument. Cake does taste good. We all know that. But that's what begging the question is. Now, begging the question has two definitions now because uh, it's been used so often to mean raise the question that people use it in that context a lot. But the original meaning was from logic and it meant uh, saying things like in a, in a wedge issue, many times, many wedge issues, pick any wedge issue and you can, you can immediately produce one of these things like um, gay marriage should be illegal because homosexuality is immoral. Now, what is the question being begged here? That is, you're saying that you just don't like this, that you think it's immoral. What does that mean? Is, is it immoral? That's the actual argument that you need to prove. The other thing is not a real argument. You're just saying that you think it's immoral and therefore it shouldn't be around. And that's a great example. You need to, to state the case. Homosexuality is immoral and here's why. And then everyone else will argue you over that based off the evidence you've produced. And then, you know, we'll even argue maybe what is morality. That's having a real logical 
formal argument. So let's discuss another logical fallacy, one that is a foundation for so many things that we've talked about before and we'll talk about in the future, and that is the post hoc fallacy. could spot the bracelets on the wrists of famous professionals in just about every popular sport, from David Beckham to Shaquille O'Neal, from the Super Bowl to the World Series, the black silicone wristbands with holograms glued to the side were everywhere. Despite their product's incredible popularity, the company responsible for manufacturing the Power Balance brand of performance wristbands filed for bankruptcy in November of 2011. The Power Balance company made a lot of claims. Their website said that the silicone rings imbued the wearer with a faster brain, faster muscles, more powerful lungs, increased flexibility, and, as the name suggests, improved balance. It also made lots of money. The magic straps were once available in more than 30 countries, and in 2011, a company spokesperson told the Associated Press that he estimated $34 million in sales that year. In March, they used their earnings to rename the Arco Arena in California to the Power Balance Pavilion. Later, they would strike a deal with the NBA to place each team's logo on its own version of the band, so the company wasn't experiencing any financial problems when it went bankrupt. In fact, the popularity of the bracelets was peaking. Former U.S. President Bill Clinton was photographed wearing one, and so was Gerard Butler and Robert De Niro, and probably all the uncles in your family who spend more time talking about golf than actually playing it. The Associated Press reported in 2011 that trainers for the Phoenix Suns basketball team swore by the trinkets and that a spokesperson for St. Vincent Sports Performance in Indianapolis, where hundreds of professional athletes go to train, estimated that a third of all of its clients wore the bracelet while working out. So from 2007 to 2012, from all walks of life, from educations, Ivy League and high school, from actors to footballers to politicians, millions of people paid $30 for a magical amulet and wore it proudly in public to, as the company promised, enhance their natural energy fields, resonate with holograms, and increase natural sporting ability. Now, chances are the company would still be going strong had it not been smacked with a $67 million settlement for consumer fraud after an Australian court found it guilty of knowingly deceiving the public. See, the problem was, with all these claims, said meddling scientists, was that every single one was completely, absolutely, and obviously false. The bands had no more power than a candy necklace out of a grocery store vending machine. Soon after the court's ruling, Power Balance LLC issued a statement that read, in part, we admit there is no credible scientific evidence that supports our claims, and therefore we engaged in misleading conduct, end quote. Then, 
They filed for Chapter 11 bankruptcy. But you still see these bracelets from time to time, especially gas station knockoffs that you'll see at the counter. But the original is dwindling from sight in the countries where they made a name for themselves and enjoyed dozens of celebrity endorsements. Of course, this is not the end of the product. The website's still alive and they sell new things there like headbands and mouth guards and all sorts of new items. And you can still find all the old products like the NBA endorsed bands at a variety of stores around the internet. In fact, I'm looking at the official Power Balance website right now and it says right here, Power Balance, motivate your life, made for athletes, by athletes. Power Balance is a favorite among elite competitors, weekend warriors, and everyday fitness enthusiasts. The hologram is designed based on Eastern philosophies. Many Eastern philosophies contain ideas related to energy. This pivot is because the company was bought by a Chinese distributor in 2012. And according to the Wall Street Journal, consumer protection officials believe it will make a big comeback. One official, Filippo Marcino, told the journal that the company would likely expand into markets that he said, quote, are more vulnerable to alternative medicine philosophies, end quote, especially those that lack consumer watchdogs. But look, it doesn't really matter. Even if the company eventually tanks, someone else will come along and begin selling magical jewelry and other mystical junk soon enough. There have always been such products, magnetic charms, homeopathic extracts, religious relics, voodoo dolls, weight loss, ear clips, sneakers with tiny catapults in them. The potential for profit will always be there waiting for a clever marketer to crack into the modern minds version of an ancient gullibility. So why does this work on you? Why do rabbit's feet and other four-leaf clovers find their way so easily into your pockets? And why does your hard-earned cash so easily find its way into the pockets of their peddlers? Well, at the root is a form of magical thinking called the post-hoc fallacy. And the way it misdirects you while you bathe in the afterglow, the placebo effect has made con artists rich for centuries. Athletes seem particularly prone to magical thinking. Pele Lindbergh, the Swedish NHL goaltender, wore the same orange shirt under his pads for every game. He never washed it, and he had it sewn back together multiple times as it rotted away over the years. After a win, tennis star Goran Ivanasevic attempted to repeat every action from that day on the day of his next match, right down to the table settings and the contents of his meals. He wrote on his blog that he looked forward to the end of tournaments because it meant he could finally eat something else. The chicken man, Wade Boggs, widely considered one of the best ever to grace a baseball diamond, was so named because he insisted on eating chicken before every event. He was also obsessed with the number 17, and he began practice in the batting cage at exactly 517 and ran sprints at exactly 717. Once, while in a slump, the announcer forgot to mention Boggs' number when he was called and Boggs' slump ended with that game, and from then on, he asked the announcer to not mention his number before he played. One biographer wrote that Boggs' entire life consisted of these routines. He was a clockwork man, a person who ritualized everything in order to keep track of his output. By remaining consistent and mechanical, Boggs saw his performance become measurable, comparable. Sports can do that to people, make players and fans into statistical neurotics more compulsive than any Dungeons and Dragons master could ever hope to be. 
And is this devotion to a quantified lifestyle that causes so many athletes to adopt magical beliefs. If they look at the numbers and see an improvement, everything that preceded that bump is suspect. Everything that comes before a positive outcome is lumped into the mixture of rituals and behaviors worth repeating. This is the post hoc fallacy. It's been an uncontrollable tick in every human head going back farther than the oldest known lucky charms buried with cave dwellers and pharaohs alike. So the words post hoc come from that Latin phrase post hoc ergo propter hoc. After this, therefore because of this, it is the natural assumption that appears in your head when one event follows another. You may not realize how fundamental this line of thought is to your daily operation of human consciousness, but consider this. Button-operated devices make intuitive sense because of your natural tendency to think in a linear post hoc sort of way. You press the doorbell button and you hear the doorbell ring. You press the elevator button and that button lights up. You touch the screen and the app comes alive. You press the button on the vending machine and a soft drink comes rattling down the chute. You've pressed buttons and been rewarded your entire life. It's conditioning at its simplest, just like a, a rat pressing a lever to get a pellet of food. And there might though be some invisible magic taking place between the moment you press a button and when you get the expected result. You can just never really be sure that you caused the soft drink to appear without opening up the vending machine to see how it works. Maybe there's a man inside who pulls out the can of soda and puts it in the chute. Maybe there's a camera watching the machine and someone in a distant control room who tells the machine to dispense your pop sends it coming. You don't know. As long as you get the result you were looking for after you press the button, it just doesn't matter. You will be more likely to press the button in the future or less likely to stop depending on how the events unfold. Children don't need uh, a lesson on the discovery of electricity and the long perilous journal toward harnessing its power to learn to avoid power outlets. Just they'll do that after one bad experience with a penny. Once zapped, a child doesn't need an explanation about the industrial process is required to complete a functioning power grid. To get something out of that experience, it doesn't matter if you understand electromagnetism or even believe it exists. The truth about what is happening in between the action and the result is something that most animals, yourself included, will never consider and never need to worry about. If your toddler is blown back by a wall socket and forever must uh, explain why Lincoln's profile is burnt into her thumb, you can rest assured the experiment will not be repeated because evolution favors... The sort of brain that says, after this, therefore because of this, and then I'm never doing that again. Because, you see, you're, you're so eager to commit this post-hoc fallacy. You have a habit of thinking that when one event follows another, the two events must be related, and that the second event was caused, or at least influenced, by the first. Because of this, the post-hoc fallacy is the kingpin of irrational thought. Post-hoc rationalization is the fairy godmother of all things inaccurate, non-scientific, mystical, mythological, and superstitious. And it makes sense that this sort of thinking would lead you into dark waters because recognizing patterns, especially if this, then that situations, is crucially important for navigating life. It's just that you aren't very good at noticing when that way of thinking is dumb. And it often is. For instance, most colds last only seven days, so whatever you take often treats only the symptoms. Still, a slew of home remedies and over-the-counter medications are probably close to your heart because you believe that getting better depends on those things, even though you would have gotten better just as quickly without them. Your civilization may dance at the same time every year to bring the rain so that your harvest grows tall and bountiful. 
but that doesn't mean your dancing has anything to do with the growth of crops. Your team may gather and pray super hard before every game, but that doesn't mean that you won the state championship because you persuaded an all-knowing deity to provide your team with strength against your pagan kickball rivals. Despite the usefulness of automatically coming to such conclusions, that way of thinking is still fallacious. Erring on the side of caution is still the best bet in most situations. So that's the factory setting for your whole species. My favorite example of the post hoc fallacy is something that happens when you sort of smash it up with the placebo effect. And you're going to find these mechanisms all over the world. They're called placebo buttons and they're everywhere. They work on the, this principle after pressing this, therefore, because I press this. So the close button doors on most elevators uh, built in the United States since the Americans with Disabilities Act don't actually work the way you think they do. The button is there for workers and emergency personnel, and it only works with a key. Not all elevators, but many. And whether or not you press the button, the doors will eventually close. But if you do press that button and later the doors do come together, a little spurt of happiness will cascade through your brain. Your behavior was just reinforced and you will keep pressing the button in the future. And according to a 2004 investigation by the New York Times, the city of New York, at least in that year, it had deactivated the pedestrian-powered manual operation of traffic lights long ago. And, quote, more than 2,500 of the 3,250 walk buttons that still exist function essentially as mechanical placebos, end quote. Computers and timers now control the lights at most intersections, but at one time, those little buttons at crosswalks, they allowed people to trigger the signal change. The task of replacing and removing all of those buttons is usually so great that most cities just leave them there. Now, you still press them, but because, you know, the light eventually changes, you don't have the time to do a double-blind study of traffic signals. So a version of the placebo effect takes over following a faulty post-hoc analysis. In an investigation by ABC News in 2010, only one functioning crosswalk button could be found in the cities of Austin, Texas, Gainesville, Florida, and Syracuse, New York. So this effect is everywhere. And in many offices and cubicle farms, thermostats on the walls are not connected to anything. For decades, landlords, engineers, and HVAC specialists have installed dummy thermostats to keep people from costing companies money by constantly adjusting the temperature. According to a 2003 article in the Wall Street Journal, one HVAC specialist surmised that 90% of all office thermostats were fake. Some companies even install noise generators to complete that illusion after you turn the knob. In a survey conducted in 2003 by Air Conditioning, Heating, and Refrigeration News, Real Magazine, 72% of respondents admitted that they had installed a dummy thermostat in their careers at least one time.
A cornucopia of alternative medicines and mystical objects continue to be available both online and in major department stores. And part of the reason it is so hard to eradicate nonsense treatments is that they often do make people feel better in some small way. As far as science is concerned, there is no way a magnetic bracelet could physically ease the pain of arthritis or improve the flow of blood. But in clinical trials, people often do feel better when they think the bracelets work. The key phrase here is feel better. The important thing to remember when you don one of these enchanted baubles or visit one of those pseudoscientific or mystical alternative medicine practitioners is that your belief is doing all the work. The objects and the treatments, they're just placeholders designed to produce a post hoc rationalization. After wearing this bracelet, therefore, because I wore this bracelet. In a way, you can see the scientific method as a necessary invention to combat the post hoc fallacy. Without it, it's hard to say what causes are truly connected to the effects you want to see repeated or hope to avoid forever. It's too bad that major events in history can never be analyzed in that way. You can never know if any decision was the right one, whether your own or that of Alexander the Great or Harry Truman. All we get are the results, and we know that after this is not necessarily because of this. But thankfully, this actually has been studied. Science has had its say in the matter of placebo jewelry, thanks to the insane popularity of the Power Balance bracelet. In 2010, researchers at the University of Wales had subjects run through a series of physical challenges while wearing a blindfold and either a dummy bracelet or a Power Balance bracelet. They found no differences between the two. Additionally, in 2011, researchers at RMIT University in Australia, they had subjects wear Power Balance bracelets with the holograms intact or replaced with tiny metal discs and ran those subjects through a battery of tests of physical prowess, including balance. They, too, found no significant difference. So, it's unlikely we'll ever be rid of these objects. And the reason for that is when psychologist Lysanne Damashin in 2010 handed half of her subjects a golf ball that she explained was lucky and handed the other half a golf ball that was presented as normal the half with the lucky ball sank 35% more putts. Now, of course, the lucky ball wasn't actually lucky, and we know this because of the way they conducted the experiment. They randomly assigned that description. They tossed a coin right beforehand, and that coin decided who would be told the ball was or was not magical. The belief, though, it had an effect. She speculated the lucky ball made the players believe they were more in control and it caused them to be more persistent. It lowered their anxiety and all of this boosted their confidence and therefore their performance. And this is the same thing that was true with those bracelets. When race car drivers and weightlifters and public speakers noticed improvements in their performance while wearing power balance bracelets, the likely culprit was the placebo effect smashed into the post hoc fallacy, the wearers could have replaced that bracelet with a bit of string and gotten the same real world results if they had maintained the same level of belief. Thanks to the post hoc fallacy, when they noticed some sort of difference, they didn't assume it was their own mind causing those changes. Instead, they looked for a cause to the effect 
And they looked for a cause that was obvious. And that obvious cause was a holographic armband. So ask yourself, is it the medication or treatment or your expectation that's making you feel better? Just because your family has been using frozen lettuce to cure aching nipples for centuries doesn't mean that lettuce is the important ingredient in that cure. Just because the lady at the massage parlor has family living in China doesn't mean her suction cups will cure your whiplash. Ask yourself if you count on certain objects or rituals in the same way someone might count on a luck-bearing rock. And be prepared to accept that thinking about a person and then receiving his or her phone call is not magical in any way whatsoever. The fact that one thing follows another proves nothing. Magical amulets do not exist. And even if they did, think about how expensive it would be to hire a factory full of wizards to enchant enough of them for worldwide distribution. That is the post hoc fallacy. It's an excerpt from you are now less dumb. And I just wanted to read that thing to you in its entirety. Uh, I cut out one or two small things, but I have mentioned this so many times in the show, uh, not just power balance bracelets, but also uh, the placebo buttons and the, um, the post hoc fallacy and all that. And I just wanted to sort of give you the whole thing all at once. And in the future, when we talk about this, we can always refer back to this episode. So I can tell you that after the book came out and it was on shelves and everything, I, I was in a sporting goods store and saw power balance bracelets are back in major department stores. So yeah, those things will be around forever in some form or another, even though they were sued and lost and had to say publicly that they don't work. That's uh, amazing. All right. We'll talk more about self-delusion in just a second after these words from our sponsors. If your mom makes beautiful crochet elephants and everyone in town is, is wanting one of these elephants so much so that she starts making them and, and selling them all around the place to her friends and family. And she wanted a website where she could sell these to the world. What would you use? I'll tell you what I would use. I would use Squarespace because Squarespace is the easiest way to just make a website. And if I wanted that website up tonight, I would definitely pick Squarespace because it's easy, it's simple, it's beautiful, and they feature drag and drop design, uh, content that's already made for you that you can use as templates, and 24-7 support through live chat and email. And that live chat email is located in New York and Dublin. So you always have someone there who can tell you, hey, press this button. Or, hey, here's a way to do this. Or, oh, you had a little trouble with that? No problem. Here's how to do it. And the plans start at $8 a month. And they include a free domain name if you sign up for a year. And if you want to do commerce, every site comes with an online store that you can turn on in a second. 
That is Squarespace. It's great stuff. And you can start a trial with no credit card required and just start building a website immediately. Just play around with it. See what you think. Seriously, everyone, I've been using Squarespace for years. I always tell people to use it. I have websites that I've made with it. It is really good stuff. So when you decide to sign up for Squarespace, make sure to go to squarespace.com and use the offer code less dumb. That will get you 10% off of your first purchase and it will show your support for this podcast. And we thank you Squarespace for your continued support. Squarespace, a better web starts with your website. The You Are Not So Smart podcast is also supported by lynda.com. I am really happy that lynda.com is supporting the show because they've made it possible for me to provide you with a special offer with access to all of their courses free for seven days. Everything free for seven days. You just go to lynda.com. That's L-Y-N-D-A dot com slash smart. What is lynda.com? It's a way for individuals and organizations and companies to stay up to date. It's a way for them to not fall behind in their knowledge of the industry or in elements of their industry to stay up to date. It's a way to make sure that you always can keep that job, that you can um, apply for another job and stay uh, aware of the latest developments in software, web development, graphic design. And they have thousands of courses, uh, content that's added daily. And all that content is through industry experts and software companies. And they provide training oftentimes on the same day that a version or a release hits the market. So you're always up to speed and all the courses are produced at the highest quality. They're not like YouTube videos. They're broken into bite-sized pieces so you can learn at your own pace and you can learn from start to finish or move around and get to the answers faster. And they have all these tools. You can search transcripts, playlists, you can uh, get certificates of course completion, which you can actually publish directly to your LinkedIn profile. And it has everything, whether you're a beginner or you're advanced. They have courses for all experience levels, and you can mess with it on your app. You can go to the computer. It's really great stuff. Now, they have one low monthly price of $25, and that gives you access to 100,000 video tutorials. But you can also upgrade to a premium plan that allows you to download the courses to your iPhone, iPad, or Android device and watch them if you're not connected to the internet. I'm using it to uh, take a course in audio engineering because I'm doing this podcast and I'm always trying to figure out how to make it not sound crappy. I'm uh, using uh, the course that I'm using right now is Bobby Owinsky. He was written like 15 books on the subject and he's got this whole course. Transcripts are on there, FAQs, course details. It starts out by how to set up a monitor and how to listen to things and listen, what, to, what to listen for. Then it goes through there like 10 courses just on microphones like where to put them and how to set them up and what you should be doing on the other end. And then it goes into recording and gain and levels and preamps. It's just so much stuff, all video, all transcribed out. This is a really cool thing, guys. And you can get seven days of it for free. So here's how you do that one more time. Go to lynda.com, L-Y-N-D-A slash smart. So this is some self-delusion news that just, I don't know what to think about it. Now, there's a lot of speculation about what this means, but we're just, we're just going to talk about the raw 
data, the evidence that was uh, derived in this experiment. And it comes from the Association for Psychological Science. You can find this on the internet at uh, psychologicalscience.org. And the name of the headline is Alcohol Makes Smiles More Contagious, But Only for Men. So here's what happened. A group of researchers from the University of Pittsburgh, they, uh, Catherine Fairborn of the University of Pittsburgh is a lead researcher. So what they did is they got a group of people all ages 21 through 28, and they had them mingle while drinking. Some people, each person was in a different condition, randomly assigned. Some people got a vodka cranberry. Some people got a placebo alcoholic drink. They were told they were drinking an alcoholic drink. And some people got a non-alcoholic drink, and they were told it was non-alcoholic. And all these people said that they were social drinkers, and they got together in a sort of fake cocktail party and started mingling. And they measured, they quantified this by seeing how often did people smile. Now, the the hypothesis was that men drink more than women um, in general, culturally speaking, in most Western cultures. And they wanted to explore whether or not that drinking alcohol was more rewarding to men than it was to women uh, when it came to social bonding. The researchers were hypothesizing that drinking is not as rewarding of a social activity as it is uh, to men among women, that women do drink socially, but men drink a lot more. And the reason they drink a lot more is because it helps them break down cultural uh, expectations, that there's an interplay of culture and psychology and the output of the, all of that is you drink more in most social situations because it's more rewarding to you. So what did they find? Well, in this condition, people aged 21 to 28, in this exact condition, the men smiled way more than the women did. And not only that, that um, this is a quote straight from the article. They found that alcohol significantly increased the contagiousness of smiles, but for only for all male groups. It did not have a significant effect on emotional contagion for groups that contained any women, end quote. So these findings, they say, um, they indicate that alcohol induces some sort of social bravery among men and that it helps men become less stoic and, and uh, more goofy and therefore smile more. And it indicates that that sort of behavior is not as rewarding culturally to women. Now there, I have a million questions about this. Uh, you know, I don't, this so much speculation here that would require more investigation. All we can really say is that men and these Western men um, were, whenever they drink, they smile more than women do. And if there are any women in the group, they don't smile nearly as much as they would without women there. That's all we can actually say. For some reason that we don't quite understand, alcohol makes smiling more common and more contagious, but only among men in certain uh, casual drinking situations. So the next time you're out drinking, especially among strangers, you check that out and see what you think. Why would that be? That is it for this episode of the You Are Not So Smart podcast. Head to boingboing.net for more great podcasts like this one. Head to youarenotsosmart.com, SoundCloud, Stitcher, or iTunes to listen to all the previous episodes of this podcast. And you can find links to everything that I talked about today at youarenotsosmart.com. I have two books out there on the shelves on Amazon. They are You Are Not So Smart and You Are Now less dumb. Send your cookie recipes to david at youarenotsosmart.com. And if I bake your cookie, I will send you a signed copy of one of those books. Follow You Are Not So Smart on Facebook, Twitter, and Google Plus. On Twitter, it's at NotSmartBlog. And I 
am at David McCraney. The opening music is Clash by Caravan Palace, and the music beds are by Drew Garraway and Banjo Apocalypse. 